For the week of Wednesday, April 25th, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, we talk first with Jan Miles. She is the author of a book entitled The Post-Racial Negro Green Book, an updated version of a travel guide used by black motorists in the 1930s through the 60s to find safe places to go in Jim Crow America. In her updated version, she's instead documented cases of racism in modern America. The fact that I could fill a book with racism is, in and of itself, the message. Then we speak with DACA recipient and immigration activist Montserrat Padilla about her reaction to the latest DACA court ruling. And we also talk with core team member of Seattle March for Our Lives, Kyler Paris, about this afternoon's march in Sammamish to call attention to the money Republican congressional candidate Dino Rossi has taken from the NRA. That's all coming up, so stay with us. Starting in 1936 and ending in 1966, a publication called the Negro Motorist Green Book helped black people find safe spaces across North America during the Jim Crow era, pointing travelers to hotels, restaurants, nightclubs, automobile repair shops, and other places that would serve black customers. So last year, author Jan Miles revived the book, but with a twist. Instead of focusing on black-friendly businesses, she has compiled a state-by-state documented listing of verified cases of police violence and acts of overt racism and hostility in America between the years 2013 and 2016 that clearly document a pattern of racial bias against black people in the 21st century. She is entitled it the Post-Racial Negro Green Book. Jen Miles, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, you know, I want to start by talking about the original Green Book, so, because I don't think everybody's familiar with it. So can you start by giving people a little history about the original Green Book? Absolutely. It was started by a black postal worker in the 30s, and he published it from 36 to 66 as a guide for the Jim Crow era for black people attempting to travel in the United States during segregation so that they'd be able to find services. Many people, I think, rightly saw it as a as a survival guide. Uh, Earl Hutchinson Sr., who is the, the father of Earl Afari Hutchinson, uh, talked about his move from Chicago to California and said that you literally didn't leave home without it. Um, Julian Bond, who is a civil rights leader, said that his parents used the Green Book and said that it was not just a guidebook to where the best places were to eat, but if there was any place at all. So it, it was basically a survival guide at that time. Absolutely, yes. So it was not a Yelp of its day by any means. It yeah. was actually a a way to survive. And publication was ended in 1966 after the signing of the Civil Rights Act. Did the publishers maybe hope that it wouldn't be needed anymore? Do you have any insight on that? Absolutely. That was his intention when he started publishing it, that, it, that there would be a day that would come when this book would no longer be needed. So your book compiles a list of acts of racism by police, by U.S. citizens, uh, and it is sadly not a short book. I I should mention that we are speaking on April 24th. This is three days after the killing of four young people at a Nashville Waffle House. A suspected white shooter is in custody. Uh, And then just a day earlier, a neo-Nazi group in Georgia uh, was filmed burning an 18-foot swastika. Uh, less than a month ago, there was a killing of Stefan Clark by police in Sacramento. There was also a white serial bomber in Austin, Texas, who killed two black people and injured a Latino woman. So 
in Trump's America. You could go on and on. I know. And, and in Trump's America, there is just sadly so much material for your book. Uh, but I'm wondering why you specifically chose to write it. And talk about the, the timing, why you were moved to write this book. Just what you're saying, I was being inundated by all of these stories, and it actually didn't start as a book. It started as a digital archive. I was doing this on a website because there were so many stories, and our news cycle now is so fast that I was concerned about the permanence of this information. I felt like it was very important that it it was the zeitgeist of, of of now and that someone needed to be keeping track of it. So I took it upon myself to start creating an archive of this information. And I then was much later, a couple of years later, was I was working with a book called 100 Years of Lynching. And I realized that that book was exactly what I was doing online with this contemporary information. And so I decided that it needed, what I was doing needed to be put into a book as well. I, I want to talk a little bit about how you compiled and verified the data for your book. You started, as you say in the book, that, with simple keyword searches. Where did you go from there? That was it. Uh, each keyword search, like, for instance, racial incidents, Idaho, would bring me lots and lots of information, uh, stories that I would then have to follow up on. So I sometimes one of the good things about the time frame that I used, being that I was working in late mid to late 2017, but ending in 2016, is that the pieces would have settled on on all of these stories for the most part. So I was able to start with whatever I found in a keyword search and just drill down until I got to the bottom of it and found out. But occasionally I would find out, oh, it was a hoax or that, you know, it was done by some, a black person for some really strange reason or something like that. But I was able to... um, verify everything just through simple research on the internet and it helped me using that time to help me weed out anything that didn't belong in the book. So, you know, I want to talk about the title of your book. Uh, you've called it the post-racial Negro Green Book. Post-racial was a term that people used perhaps hopefully during the Obama era, um, but given what's happened since then, I, I imagine that you meant this title ironically. That was absolutely tongue-in-cheek. Of course, there's no post-racial America. The fact that I could fill a book with racism is in and of itself the message. So, of course, there's no post-racial America. And it's the idea of even doing a green book now just sends that message, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the period that you cover in the book, 2013 to 2016 is actually before the Trump administration began. Uh, 2017 is the first full year of the Trump administration. And you've said in interviews that you could fill a whole book with 2017 incidents alone, which is heartbreaking, but I'm sure it's true. Uh, Do you have a follow-up book planned? Uh, It is a possibility. When I worked on this edition and I had to disregard all of 2017, there was so much. Sometimes it would be pages and pages of 2017 stories before I would get to things that were that fit into my time frame for this book. 
So, yes, it's possible that I will do another edition, and, and it could be an annual, just like the Negro Motorist Green Book was. Possible and horrifying. Yeah, horrifying is, is the right word. And, you know, I will just say, reading page after page of these horrific incidents of violence and racism is, it's, it's, it's hard going. Um, I, I'm wondering, was compiling this book, did it, did it take a toll on you? Actually, I feel like, and this is strange, I feel like it was helpful for me because I was already being exposed to all of these stories, and this gave me a, literally a place to put it yeah. so that every time I got another piece of terrible information, I was able to put it in the book, complete that entry, and move on. So I think that it was actually helpful for me psychologically. So I want to talk about the two intros that you did for the book. You did the non-woke version and the woke version, as you refer to them. Talk a little bit about the differences in tone and, and why you chose to do it that way. I chose to do it that way because I think there are two disparate audiences for this book. One of those audiences is probably people who look like me, black people or people of color. And that is, those people would generally be woke people, which is to say they're already racially conscious. So I wrote an introduction that speaks to them. But then I wrote a separate introduction that I called the non-woke, which is for people who are not necessarily like-minded. I think that an important audience for this book is people that don't believe the, the contents of this book exist people who think that there really is a post-racial America. And those are absolutely the people who need to be reached by this sort of information. But it's got to be frustrating because, you know, here we are in 2018. uh, Everybody has cell phones. YouTube is ubiquitous. We now see recorded incidents of police brutality, police killings, even of, of unarmed citizens. And yet nothing seems to change. Absolutely. And and there are people who really don't believe still. I I was listening to the radio. I was actually scanning the dial last week, and there was a DJ on. I, I stopped. My ears pricked up because he was talking about the Starbucks incident. And this man was vehement that anyone who had gone into a Starbucks and was in there at the time, he thought, you know, 15 minutes without purchasing anything, would have received the same treatment. And I really believe that he really believes that. And he's someone who I feel like needs a book like this. He's that non-book audience. And, and you're talking about the incident at the Philadelphia Starbucks where two black men were ejected, uh, arrested by police while they were sitting and waiting for a, a business meeting. And this is something that would not have happened if they had been white. And, you know, this brings up something that you did with your book. You chose to include instances where a white suspect exhibited the same behavior with police for which a black person is often shot. Uh, I think the Starbucks example speaks to it. But uh, talk about why you chose to include that. It was just, to me, those incidents are equally important to paint the picture. This, this book, to me, is a snapshot of contemporary racism, and it works. Both sides are relevant to that picture. The, you mentioned the Waffle House shooter. Well, he's bonded. He's, he's, he's been offered bond. Who else, what black person could walk into a place and shoot white people and be offered bond? 
it just wouldn't happen. So to me, there are both sides of this coin are, are relevant to painting the future. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when, when you hear things like that, you're, your heart just sinks, and your book takes great pains to document instances just like that. And, I, you know, I do want to stress that you devote a portion of your book to what people can do in response, which I think is very important. And I, I want to highlight a couple of the points that you bring up. First, you say don't be a bystander. In other words, if you hear people using racial slurs, speak up. You also say find a niche and find a way to make an impact. Talk about that. Yeah, there's so much that we can do now. There, In the face of all of the negative, there's also a lot of positives happening. At least where I am, there's so many organizations. And I should mention you're in New Orleans. I'm in New Orleans, yes. And there are so many organizations that have sprung up that are doing work around racial equity and other things that are, that are important to the current situation. You could work around... Um, Municipal fines, uh, debtors' prisons, these things affect people of color disparately. You could work around education. You could work around housing. You could work around employment. There are so many ways to enter, and I've tried to highlight a variety of those in this book so that people can think about the different ways that they can make an impact. You also talk about finding places to divest and divert funding, and you say race is a red herring. Uh, Tell us what you mean by that. Uh, people are really caught up in race. Race was initially what was used to divide the lower 90%. So the people who were sharecroppers or whatever, they were black and they were white, and they were equally powerful, and they worked together at that time. And I'm talking pre-slavery even. They were able to make an impact against the the upper ten percent, the wealthy, and so race was then used to separate us, to separate them, and it's still being used that that way to this day. It's it's a, a bone for us to fight over while the wealthy stay wealthy. So yeah, I think people need to really think about that as a way to. To bring us together. I, I, I get really tired of racism being um, such an important factor, dividing us so much. As much as I appreciate the work that's being done around racial equity, I do wish that some of us were doing more work around bringing people together on issues that affect all of us. If that makes sense. No, sure it does. I mean, this was kind of the argument that the Occupy Wall Street movement, right? It was the yes. 99% versus the 1%. Yes, exactly. And so when you talk about finding places to divest and divert funding, you're saying speak with your dollars. Uh, are you talking uh, boycotts, things like that? If that's what it takes, absolutely. The last thing that you say on your list is to relocate to Hawaii, um, and that was kind of a funny thing because it's the shortest chapter in the book. Uh, there are no documented cases that you were able to find between 2013 and 2016, which is not to say that racism doesn't exist there. But I think it's interesting to note that Hawaii is the only state where white people have never been the majority. It's, uh, it's hard to say if there's a correlation there. Absolutely, and maybe there is. I I think there are probably a lot of correlations that people could find in the data that I've provided in this book, but I wanted to make sure that I didn't try to provide findings. I've given people not just all of the 
the incidents that you talk about, but also data for each state about employment, imprisonment ratios, things like that. I think that if someone were to study this material, you could probably use it as a springboard for other things because I'm sure there are correlations that you would find. I think perhaps if you were to look at, for instance, the states with the highest black population and then compare the state, compare their imprisonment ratios, I found a little bit of correlation there that the, the prison, imprisonment ratios were actually lower in those states. But I didn't want to get it to a point where I was trying to draw conclusions from the data. So there's data, there's anecdotal evidence here. I would love to see someone take that and push it farther. Sure, that would be a job for an academic. And, and we can hope that somebody gets their hands on this and maybe does some work with the data that you've compiled. It's really an extraordinary document. Uh, the book is the Post-Racial Negro Green Book. It is available on Brown Bird Books. Jen Miles, thank you so much. Thank you. On Tuesday, Washington, D.C. District Court Judge John Bates issued a ruling that would force the Trump administration to allow current DACA recipients to be able to apply for work permits and also to begin accepting new DACA applications. But the judge also stayed his ruling for 90 days, giving the administration a chance to appeal. Joining us to talk about this is Montserrat Padilla. She is a DACA recipient living here in Washington, and she is a statewide coordinator for the Washington Immigrant Solidarity Network. Montserrat, thank you so much for joining us again on the show. Thank you so much, Stefan, for uh, inviting me into this space. I'm very happy to be here. Um, we know that we've been organizing for over a decade this movement, and just yesterday that was a, another victory for our community. So excited to share more about it. Well, we're excited to hear from you. And while, yeah, it is certainly a victory, I, I can imagine that the 90-day stay issued by the judge is somewhat troubling. What are your thoughts on the ruling generally? Yeah, I think that um, my initial reaction was, you know, this uh, regain hope on the ch- on our uh, just on our judicial system, uh, knowing that under this administration, what's keeping our community safe is the courts, uh, especially the Ninth Circuit Court, um, where they have shown uh, really uh, a valuable um, defense line for our immigrant communities, particularly in DACA. So. Yesterday with the announcement, um, one, it was another stop to the president, realizing that his uh, racism and xenophobic actions would not uh, pass by our judicial system, um, and that, once again, immigrant youth could really feel safe with the successful uh, Deferred Action for Childhood program, which is also known as DACA. Uh, We know that it is not a permanent solution, that this is just a band-aid for our communities, uh, but under this current political climate, um, it's a right in the right direction. It's a step in the right direction. Well, you know, it's it sounds like you're optimistic, and I have to wonder what the last seven months have been like since Trump rescinded DACA. It, it it has to have just been with all of these different rulings. It has to have just been an enormously stressful time for you. I can imagine. Yeah, I think definitely over the last seven months, um, this uncertainty of belonging really overwhelms not only myself but our communities. Right. Uh, Do people really care for us? Do people really want us here? Um, Oftentimes our allies say that we are welcome, but 
um, you know, I think it's important to understand that in, in our communities, this sense of unwantedness was starting to overwhelm us, particularly with the DACA program. Uh, with it being taken away, with it being not taken away, this uncertainty of what was going to happen to the program really uh, confused us and flustered our community. So I think that uh, the, the ruling of yesterday, one, reaffirmed that commitment from our allied community that their actions, their they're talking to their neighbors really has shaped the uh, the public narrative so that we build collective social power and have, uh, you know, are really winning the narrative about DACA and about immigrant youth and about our parents, right? So I think that um, uh, at this point, there's a re, uh, reaffirmed commitment to continue organizing, continue fighting, continue empowering other undocumented communities because we know that the fight doesn't end with undocumented students or undocumented youth, but it, um, it is our parents who made the ultimate sacrifice so that we can be able to live uh, 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 in this country without fear um, and with the opportunity to dream high. Uh, so I think that um, moving forward, um, you know, there's still we need to still pass a permanent solution on the Clean Dream Act where no added enforcement is included to a bill uh, because this administration vowed to find a permanent solution. Um, and we will hold it accountable to such uh to such um, promise. So um, we know that the DACA program will now be, uh, even the 90 days, there's no counter argument, no valid uh, liable counter argument that the program will have to reopen its doors uh, within 90 days. Um, we're hopeful that the administration has given up on the attack on DACA, but if they haven't, we are ready to organize and continue fighting back. And uh, I think for all the listeners who are listening today, uh, this is an exact proof. Uh, I know our indivisible partners, you all have been leading amazing work in our communities, uh, talking to your neighbors, talking to your friends, holding uh, community forums about the importance of DACA. And this is literally a victory uh, that shows how this conversation has impacted judicial uh, ruling. So over the next 90 days, as I mentioned, uh, there is a stay. But during that time, people who are eligible can apply for DACA, do you personally know anybody who's going to be doing that? Um, I think that yes, there's a couple other, a couple folks that I I've gotten um, uh, I've encountered through this organizing effort in the last seven months of young uh, teenagers who were 15 years old, who were barely turning 16, um, and when the doors closed on DACA, they found their this sense of hopelessness because even though they were fully eligible because the doors were closed for initial applications. It could have no longer uh, benefited from this program. Right. So now this uh, sense of this sense of uh, hope is restarting to, um, you know, overwhelm their hearts. So they're able to continue organizing with passion, feeling uh, security in their own communities. Um, so I do know pl- uh, many. It's an entire new generation of young leaders, uh, 15 to 16 year olds, who will now be able to qualify for this program. If there's no counter liable counter argument, right? Because it's not even it's not simply a counter argument, but it has to be a liable counter argument that, ju- that our judicial system sees as an uphold uh, statement to potentially continue uh, having the DACA uh, DACA program hold, held in the court. So, if there's no liable argument, then the, the administration will have to reopen its doors for new applications, um, and this new generation of young leaders will start applying. Um, hopefully, with um, so we're keeping hopeful. Uh, we are working with uh, uh, legal entities um, to be able to uh, just be able to best advise our communities. I think that one of the things that we're advising our communities right now is to not to not take any legal actions at this current time. That when that moment comes, that they will for sure know from their 
uh, local organizing communities on what to do next. But something to be prepping for um, is that, you know, there is a fee of $495. That is a very cost um, costly fee for our communities. Yeah, it's a lot of money. Yeah, that is a lot of money for families who, you know, have a single parent only working um, and they have three children who they all need to pay their $495. That adds up a lot, plus legal representation. So one of the ways that our allied communities can be organizing at this current time is really helping um, create scholarships. So once this uh, uh, program gets reopened, um, that uh, DACA renewal fund is able to be ready for the community because once the program is open, we also don't know how long of, of an open door gate it will have. So. Uh, we want to make sure that as many people have the resources they need to be able to apply for this uh, successful program. Yeah, well, anybody who has the means to donate or create fundraisers absolutely should take the initiative to help out there. Well, Montserrat, I want to thank you, uh, as always, for all the work that you're doing, and thank you for joining us again on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. Students who organized the Seattle March for Our Lives have organized a march today in Sammamish. They will be marching from East Lake High School to the gates of Salahi Country Club, where Republican congressional candidate Dino Rossi is having a fundraiser. The students will be wearing price tags for $2.65, and we'll talk about why in just a moment. We are joined by Kyler Paris. He is a March for Our Lives Seattle core team member, and he joins us now to talk about today's march. Kyler Paris, welcome. Thank you, Seven. Okay, so first, tell us about the $2.65 price tag that you're going to be wearing. What does that represent? Well, yeah, uh, the March for Our Lives national organizers um, came up with this idea at some point to um, look at how much uh, different candidates were accepting uh, in donations from the NRA uh, and saying it basically is that's an exchange for um, our safety as students and as uh, young people. And so we uh, took it a step further and we divided the amount that Gino Rossi has received um, in his campaigns in the past, which is a total of about $400,000. And we divide that number by the number of students in his district. Um, And so uh, we're going to be wearing uh, price tags of $2.65 to uh, show that he's uh, basically selling off uh, our safety for uh, about less than $3 a kid. It's a great statement. How many students do you anticipate are going to be taking part in today's event? One of the interesting things with how we've planned is, I mean, we've only been playing it since Monday, so it's a little bit of a short-notice thing. And uh, one of the interesting things about how we've gone about it, knowing that um, political candidates, and especially those that like to insulate themselves in country clubs in the first place, uh, <laughs> would likely cancel or move a fundraiser uh, if they were to know far ahead of time that it was going to be protested. Um, so uh, we got the inside information on uh, this fundraiser over the weekend, um, and we've just been spraying it by word of mouth, uh, especially by texts and DMs and Snapchats, just going individually out to students all over the region. Um, so I can't tell you how many students that are going to be there. A lot have been contacted. A lot have, you know, we have sports and other things going on. But sure. we're making a priority of this movement, and uh, it should be interesting. And if nothing else, it'll be uh, surprising and, and hopefully make a statement. Absolutely. And I, I, I like the strategy. I think it's great. And so uh, this is going to be for just, uh, I want to stress this, this is not just for students. This is for adults as well, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, we've laid the groundwork for the students. 
um, especially since this is a student-led uh, thing. The whole idea of March for Our Lives is um, student leadership and bringing young people into civic engagement again, um, because there's a lot of power there. But we also need support from everyone in this issue. We need uh, voters of all ages and to participate and be engaged and come out to this march and come out to future ones, because this movement, uh, especially I think in Washington State, uh, we're almost there. You know, we just need to put the fire uh, there and um, make our legislators know that this is a priority that needs to be addressed in the next legislative session and going forward in Congress. Absolutely. And, you know, you talk about this next legislative session that is going to be coming up in 2019. The November elections are going to be very crucial. Trying to widen the Democrats' margin will probably be the deciding factor in uh, having some real gun legislation happen during the next legislative session. Yeah, uh, and there's some great Democrats that are running all over the state. There's a lot of uh, women and women of color that are running for the as first-time candidates in state legislative races all around the state. Um, and we have a—I mean, I'm just now getting into uh, electoral politics, but it's um, it's really impressive the great candidates that we have to look at. Um, and uh, I mean, I'm a Democrat, and I'm fine to say that, but importantly for this. Uh, this movement is that they are uh, pro-gun control and pro-new comprehensive gun legislation, um, and that's what we need to bring into the fold. Now, are you going to be of voting age come November? I am. I'm 18 right now, so oh, okay. I'm really excited to have my first opportunity to elect legislators. Well, it's an extraordinarily auspicious time for you to be doing that. And, you know, I should mention today's march is happening uh, just a month almost to the day after the March for Our Lives that happened worldwide. Um, You clearly see this as an ongoing movement, right? Right. It's a a month and a day after. um, And we'll be putting out a statement soon about our plans going forward in Seattle and uh, Washington State. Because it certainly is a movement, you know. Uh, we can go out there and all march, 50,000 of us in Seattle, we can all march together, and that's great. Um, but it can be so much more powerful if we can continue this momentum uh, into the next next legislative session, into November. Um, the voters 18 to 29 in the last midterm election uh, voted at, at about 21%, which is horrendous. Because we need more than one in five young people to make their voices heard in our um, democratic system. Well, you know, I think a lot of people are anticipating that that number is going to be significantly higher this year, just anecdotally based on the enthusiasm that we have seen. Uh, Are you getting the impression that more and more uh, people your age are getting excited about getting involved in the electoral process? If I've lost count of the amount of times in the past month I've been asked how you register to vote. Oh, that's great. Uh, it's We're going to be hosting uh, with March for Our Lives Seattle. Uh, we're going to be hosting with student leaders around the state different uh, voter registration drives, helping them set it up um, in their schools uh, because we see the power and if it's student-led. And uh, the student leadership there is a crucial factor in making these successful. And we really think that if we can make – Voting seems fun. You know, civic engagement should be a really enjoyable thing because you're making your voice heard. You're participating in this great American system. Um, And we're hoping to really put that out there this year. Uh, And I think you'll see a lot more than one in five 
young people voting. You know, something that I've heard leaders uh, from the March for Our Lives movement suggest is that uh, while this movement is certainly about school shootings, it's about gun violence generally, right? And in particular, I know that there is an emphasis on addressing how communities of color are are disproportionately affected by the gun issue. You're exactly right. You know, the communities of color and uh, have been uh, disproportionately affected for decades by gun violence. Uh, and there's been people protesting against this for just as long. The problem is that they haven't gotten the same sort of media attention. They haven't gotten the same sort of widespread support that March for Our Lives has. Um, and one of the great things that the Parkland students have done, and we've uh, also been working towards at uh, in Seattle, is uh, highlighting those voices and uh, amplifying them. Uh, these activists deserve to be heard, and they, they have these personal connections to gun violence in their own lives. Um, and that's so valuable to um, a potential voter and to a legislator on that sort of uh, power. Well, it's great that you're bringing awareness to that. And uh, this is certainly an issue. The gun issue affects all of us ultimately. So for today's event, uh, people are going to be meeting at East Lake High School. That is at 400 228th Avenue Northeast in Sammamish. It's going to be a one-mile march to uh, the Salahi Country Club. And uh, I will have all of that information available for listeners on the SoundCloud page as well as at IndivisiblePodcast.org. But Kyler Paris, I, first of all, I want to thank you uh, for joining us. But I also especially want to thank you for all the great work that you're doing with this movement. Thank you so much, Stefan. And that'll do it for this week's show. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you listen. I would totally appreciate that. You can also get more information about the show at IndivisiblePodcast.org, and you can subscribe there as well. The email address is IndivisiblePodcast at gmail.com, and we are on Twitter at IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guests, Jan Miles, Montserrat Padilla, and Kyler Paris. Special thanks goes out to Maggie Cuevas. And of course, my thanks as always to you for listening. We'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.